Hello, everybody. This is Robin Harford from eatweeds.co.uk. And today I'm interviewing Nick Hayes, who is the author of The Book of Trespass. It's quite a contentious issue, this one. There seems to be a lot of legislation in the UK that is limiting or going to be limiting more our access to wild places and nature. So at the end of last year, I put out a question to my audience and I had over 100 replies, many of them from landowners with their concerns. So I need to make it clear that this is not about having a fight, as in we want to destroy anything. And we just need to open the discussion up because at the moment it's quite polarised and it's my side's right and your side's wrong and vice versa. So in the spirit of non-violence, let's, let's get into it. So Nick, welcome. And can you just give us some background? How did the Book of Trespass come about and what's your kind of background? Hi, Robin. And yeah, thanks everyone for listening and for having me on. Book of Trespass came out in August and uh, was probably me researching for about five years. But the premise of it is it's in a template of a lot of uh, nature writing. It's sort of someone goes for a walk and then uncovers the history and the context of what they see. But I basically jump a load of walls and barbed wire fences and uh, basically go and explore the land hidden behind these walls and try to uncover uh, the history of how that land was privatised, how the commoners were divested, not just of their opportunity uh, to share the wealth of the land, but their their right to basically co-own the decisions of how it was managed as well, and what became of it, and to guard its sustainability. So the book is an account of that, and basically a history of land ownership since William the Conqueror, where it all uh, went sour. So can you give us a really kind of short history which is always really hard question to ask but for people who don't know things like enclosures where did the where where did the shift happen was it william the conqueror or yeah it was actually a lot of what we consider now to be orthodox was introduced by william the conqueror and his harrying of the north and his kind of pretty brutal near genocidal oppression of the the inhabitants of England at the time. Basically, he brought over this concept of the forest. Uh, and forest is a word that has got nothing to do necessarily with trees, but it's, uh, it's actually a, a word that derives from the Latin meaning outside of. And basically, William the Conqueror, within a couple of years, had fenced off about one fifth of England, including most of Essex. And he turned these into play into forests, and that meant that they were outside of common law. Now, common law meant that you didn't own the land that was still owned by thanes and Searles, I think it's pronounced, the lords of the land. But the locals that lived on and around it had rights to pasture their uh, cattle, had rights to collect firewood for winter, had rights to hunt. All of a sudden, when the fences went up, they were cleared out of the land if the fences were around their villages, and they were essentially robbed of their right to um, self-sustenance. They were robbed of their rights to the land. So this new concept of ownership, including the idea of exclusion, which it never had done before. Previous to that, people worked the land on a sort of rotational farm system. that No one owned the land that worked it, but they all had rights to basically pitch in and decide who 
rather how it was managed. I'm going to play devil's advocate in the kind of questioning that comes up. Back then, there were far less people. The population was minuscule compared to 66 million people at the moment. So there is this tendency within the culture that, and the concerns of, of certainly the landowners that contacted me after I asked people questions. And I have to say, most of them were incredibly polite and they didn't kick punch me in the face. Some did. Some were utterly disgusting, actually. But that wasn't the majority. So there are concerns, particularly from last year when lockdown was unlocked and lots of people entered the countryside and left a load of garbage around, basically. So I'm going to just, as I said before we started recording, I'm going to field the questions from the landowners and then I'm going to move into the questions from commoners and their concerns, because obviously both sides have concerns. So let's just start with, with one of these. I agree to roam, but I don't agree with camping and fires anywhere. A landowner should be able to control this. I look after a nature reserve for the National Trust and see far too much damage from camping and fires. Should the petition wording be changed to only roam? Also, how to stop damage to farmland, as in the south, most land is not housing, it's farmland. So just that thing of some, someone said yesterday, actually, to me, that they said, well, that's all very well. Basically, we need to keep people out off the land and in the cities because they're basically trashing it. So that this that's going to be a massive argument that people are going to be putting against opening up rights to Rome. Absolutely. And to be clear, from the off, we're looking for an extension of uh, a legal framework that already exists. We're looking to extend the Countryside and Rights of Way Act, not just from the 8% that it currently covers, because that's our primary concern is getting access to nature or people being able to access nature in, in a way that is actually feasible for them. This 8% of land is largely moorland and mountain, which means it's a long way away from most people. It relegates nature and an immersion of nature to a very rare holiday for those that can afford it. What we're looking to do is to expand the Countryside and Rights of Way Act to cover rivers, to cover woodland and to cover greenbelt, which of course includes a lot of farming. And we want to do this for the mental health benefits and the physical health benefits that come with it. But of course, this notion that the public constitutes some kind of threat to the countryside or by and large are vandals is, is a big concern for us. Lockdown made us really stop and think that litter isn't just a kind of sideline issue. This is central to the problem of the countryside and we're going to have to solve it if we're going to talk about it. one foot takes us towards a right to roam. The other foot has to explain, follow up and explain what we're going to do to protect the countryside. The countryside code even before it was revamped, the government had spent £2,000 a year on advertising it. One answer and to begin to kick things off is that actually the, the public have been so divorced from the countryside for such a long time that there's so little signage. We used to be, or people used to be taught the countryside code as part of uh, the education system. That's all fallen by the wayside. These days, if you want to grow up and with an education in nature, you basically have to be rich enough to afford 
forest schools or Steiner schools or schools that actually have the facilities to take teaching outside. So education in nature, the idea that the government should actually be signposting us the right and wrong ways to act, just as they have done, say, with the coronavirus, and to actually put the money into it. These are the kind of systemic issues which lead to litter. But really, our answer to solving the litter problem is this notion of the commons that existed before uh, these forests, before William the Conqueror came over. Commons weren't just areas of space, they were also the kind of matrix of how the public could interact with nature in a sustainable and reciprocal way. So what we'd be saying is, if there is a right to roam over this river, if there is a right to roam over this area of farmland, walking uh, along the hedgerows to the side of the field, then there needs to be a local community group that guarantees to the farmer or the landowner that their pledge is to, on a weekly basis, or however that might be sorted out, to go around and to actively pick up the litter. And if you look closer at it, that's exactly what's happening at the moment. It's teams of volunteers all over the country that love their countryside and are going out there and just cleaning the hedgerows. Now, I think I can hear, or I can't hear, but I can assume that there's people listening that are thinking how I feel about litter when I kind of unwrap the willow trees of ancient tarp and bin liner and excavate the Lucasade bottles out of the roots when I'm kayaking that actually litters a moral issue like people like why should I be clearing up someone else's litter that's that's appalling like these people are as I, I don't want to put words at anyone's mouth but there's a psychopathic feel to litter in that it wasn't there before you through negligence or just not caring you drop the lucasade bottle or leave your disposable barbecue there kind of thing there's a kind of psychopathy in that you can't empathize with that someone else might come along and it ruined their uh, experience it wasn't like that when you arrived but actually we need to be pragmatic there's a a group called Trash Free Trails that have their, they're basically studying the effects of litter and how litter actually works. Their, their groups are mountain bikers that every week go around and collect litter just in the manner that I've been suggesting needs to be rolled out across the country. And they're finding almost obviously, but this is the statistics now, that if there is less litter in the place, people are less likely to litter. But also more, slightly more interesting facts is that actually these community litter groups are themselves ways of benefiting community cohesiveness but also the mental health of all the people that go along to do it there's camaraderie in it and there are countless examples to do with rivers woodland areas where people go around picking up litter and there and that's basically that's what we want to roll out to the whole country because we're not looking about gadding around the countryside doing what the hell we want we're looking about a closer and deeper and more caring relationship with the countryside, but that needs to include a visceral lived experience of the countryside for people in order to care. Those are really good points that you make. And I, I liked how you said that we have an obesity problem in the country, so the government spends millions just trying to educate the public on healthy eating, rightly or wrongly, whether or not you agree with their particular kind of angle on it they that it, it comes down to an educational framework and like you say children at the moment certainly the young ones my my grandson 
who is six years old, the other day reprimanded his mum because she'd got something in in a plastic bag. And <laughs> I don't know where that's coming from. I think it is coming from the from the parenting, but it's also, I suspect, coming from the school as well. So if that educational framework is already in place, it doesn't take much to to slot in the ways that we behave in the countryside. I would suggest that it's also a, a matter of a cultural shift as well, like a Blue Planet. People have been talking about recycling and the damage that, in fact, my first graphic novel was called The Rhyme of the Modern Mariner. It was a riff on Coleridge's book, but it was about, that was about 10, 12 years ago that I did that. And that was about the seven, they're called gyres, the whirlpools of where the different currents of the ocean kind of collate and they mix together and what that's done is basically create these islands or actually columns going all the way down to the ocean bed of just microplastics and that to me seemed when it seemed like a perfect kind of uh, encapsulation of the horror of what we're doing with plastic and if we're really honest like my girlfriend has a completely different take on litter in the countryside and she's been a little bit tongue-in-cheek but what happens when I go to the bins when with after a kayaking and I've got like a whole sack full of uh, you know crap basically uh, and I put it in the bins I've what I've done I've removed the eyesore but I haven't removed the issue because the litter that I've just put in the bin is now either going to get buried in Grays Inn in Essex or whatever, wherever the local landfill is, or it's going to be shipped out, which is what we do. We contract our filth to other places that find it profitable to take it from us. But the litter doesn't go anywhere. It lies in the ground. So my girlfriend's point of view is at least littering is more honest because you haven't hidden it under the carpet. She's been... She's been funny there but the real issues here like I agree that litter is an almost it's definitely sociopathic but I think it's psychopathic I'm fascinated by what could lead someone to just think that was acceptable behavior but really once we've solved the litter pod problem which we just full out entirely intend to do I do like you say about your six-year-old it's possible like you, you can change people's ways and actually it's it's so unnatural to leave something in the countryside. It shouldn't actually be too hard to nudge people skillfully enough to actually realise just how abhorrent that is. But fundamentally, we can clean the countryside of litter and the problem of litter or plastic or non-renewables is still there. So it, we're also looking at it systemically, but for the campaign that we're running at the moment, it's very much that idea that... It, People that love the countryside should actually take responsibility for the access of people that are visiting it. And also just a note on lockdown, like I know, I don't know how many of our listeners have taken nitrous oxide gas, but I used to live in London and like in my twenties, nitrous oxide gas was what you, I mean, they sell it on the, just beneath my window on old street. It's a party drug. It's just like a, you spray it into a balloon and then you breathe it in and it makes you go a bit do lally for five minutes. Um, like lockdown litter was almost always accompanied by a pyramid of these kind of empty gas casings kind of thing. This, though no one can prove it, but this was the pub and club and festival culture not allowed any of their normal places to basically get high and let loose. Coming to the countryside and actually probably coming to the countryside for the first time, they were just looking for somewhere to get high. And I've got nothing against that, but 
actually the more times they were to do it or if they were to develop an actual relationship with the spot that they did then comes the care and then comes the interest that was my history walking in the woods as a teenager making fires and in the countryside just drinking for the first time and stuff and it's actually through those this, this is why camping is so crucial uh, to our campaign as well you need to be able to feel at home in the countryside for you to really feel like why would you shit on your own doorstep basically we're, we're talking about deeper connection with nature not just running amok in the countryside and leaving all the gates open and not giving a crap to take it back to what something you said a little bit earlier how do you see the local commoners interacting with landowners in a non-confrontational way because you mentioned something about how local groups of people who want access to land then become almost the guardians of how people engage with the land. Was that right? And so how do you see that dialogue starting and opening up with landowners? Because at the moment, I, I particularly, I went out last week with some chums and I've seen lots of new fencing and certainly not lots of new trespass signs being put up. It, there's a lot of fear from the landowning class. Mm -hmm. which I understand. And you look at the questions that they've asked and it is about everything you've just covered, all that distraction, gates being left open, animals being threatened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm interested in how do we start the conversation with landowners, farmers, whoever, whoever's got in, in charge of the land that people are wanting to have access to how do we open those discussions up with them the dialogue is crucial isn't it like uh, one of the points i make in my book is up until chapter 10 i'd never on all of these trespasses i'd never of course met the actual owner of the land so I, the largest landowner in west berkshire which is where i grew up is a former conservative former richest mp in parliament richard benyon my parents love richard benyon he's a great const constituent mp or was, and uh, but he's also the guy that owns 12,000 acres of West Berkshire and another 20,000 acre grouse moor up in um, Scotland. So how I, I just thought, how am I gonna speak to him? So I was registered at my parents' address for voting. I realized I could go along for the MP open surgery and we spoke about it and it was a genial conversation until, until it wasn't basically. And I guess, our number one concern is that the dialogue or the, an open, frank discussion on the one side, look, we have a, you were referring to the obesity crisis. The, the report that we're citing is that NHS is cracking under the pressure of not just mental health, but heart disease and, and chronic obesity to the tune of one billion pounds a year on a practical level there is something that needs to be done people need to be given and not just given but encouraged to use the countryside but not to use it like you might use and discard but to actually develop a, a, a deep relationship with it but primary to that is that that we need a discussion with landowners and landowners as, as well meet some ramblers and have a nice chat. Most of the landowners I've met, just in the woods opposite, I'm on the Kennet and Avon Canal in the woods opposite. Like this winter, I'm, I'm quite big into stick making, finding blackthorn, uh, straightening it up, capping it with a bit of, a bit of bronze and uh, selling it in the country market. As soon as the guy realized that I was not just there to 
piss about basically but actually had an interest in something and could talk to him about coppicing and the difference between hazel rods and blackthorn or ash that we had a conversation and people t- by and large get on especially in the countryside when the conversation is civil and certainly in times of brexit where we have become so polarized and there's a zeitgeist of if you don't believe what i believe then you're my enemy we fully understand that there are some ramblers when we we're speaking to landowners currently and it's not just the issue of litter and damage to livestock and ground nesting birds it's also just some ramblers are arseholes and they they say they say pretty they say nasty things they're aggressive but the truth is of course some gamekeepers are arseholes and they're actually need the countryside code why could it not be expanded to to very explicitly state the etiquette because we're looking at that in terms of people of color and in terms of working class people uh, and also how safe women feel in the countryside. There is a, a machismo and a sort of aggression that is created by the barbed wire and the uneven laws of ownership. All of this can be healed. And all of this is what we're looking at because, yeah, like I said, we don't want a free ticket to, this, to the movies to just sit around and leave our popcorn there. We want, we want an involved interaction with nature. And actually, I find it very hard there is this trope this is the landowner versus the rambler kind of thing but actually many of the tenant farmers in our country are in an incredible really difficult situation squeezed by the supermarket squeezed by the government and i understand the last thing they need is a load of people gathering around leaving the fences open gates open but actually if more people were aware of the sort of valuable work that farmers and land workers do and actually saw the hours that they put in. I've been trespassing at eight in the morning, seeing the tractor or the uh, the plough already going and then come back in the evening and there it still is, still doing the fields. Yeah. we. I, I actually think greater access to the countryside is a way of putting farmers and land workers on the pedestal that they deserve to be alongside nurses and other essential workers, doctors, surgeons, because they are the pillar of of our society um they they feed us that was one of the things that came up in let me just try and find it here in farmers weekly was they're pretty pissed off with this action but obviously they're not talking to the people behind it certainly not from the sound of it our involvement with that action is basically being to advise like xr came to us and said we want to do an action to mark the 24th what we said was what we really need to do is reach out to landowners. So of course we want to honor the trespass of the kinder trespass of the 24th of April. But what we really want you to do is to go there and deliver a letter to the landowners. And if there's landowners listening, I really would urge you to read our letter because for us, we're not organizing the trespass, that's XR doing that. But our input has been effectively a guide of uh, what not to do how to act like we've advised people to look at the country's the scottish outdoor access code because that's a code that is developed for right to roam and open access and it's very sensible and very uh just pragmatic is just very good on the ground points but also please read our letter because yeah don't believe the hype we're (laughs) we, we might believe in a greater access to the countryside but that's because we want to swim in rivers not because we've got anything against the owners of the land. Um, And we're trying to make the point that actually at some point, 
society is going to realize that the way it is at the moment is just not tenable in terms of public health something needs to give and we do need more access to the countryside so let's please start that conversation because we've got open ears we want to hear what landowners what the concerns are and and how we can then work to build that into what we're planning let me just put this question to you which comes from the country land and business association where they basically said it beggars belief about the demonstration but Mark Bridgman, who's the president of the CLA, said we have 140,000 miles of public footpaths in England and Wales alone. That's enough to circumnavigate the world six times and is more than any other country of comparable size. And basically, he's saying, look, there's enough open access for commoners. Why increase it anymore? The radical in me, and this is not the campaigner in me, the radical in me uh, wants to ask Mark why I should take his word for uh, how much country I should uh, have access to and exactly what style of recreation or enjoyment I should be like partaking in. Uh, sure, the footpath network of England is outstanding, but it is a fraction of the footpath network that existed before enclosure or before certainly the Georgian era. Even the Ramblers found something like a 46,000 miles of pathway just unregistered in the Southwest region. This was a couple of months ago kind of thing. But what if I don't like to walk? What if I like to kayak or paddleboard or to swim? What if actually what I want to do in the countryside is not exercise, but what if I want to uh, study, if I'm an entomologist or if I'm a, it's moths are my interests or newts are my interests? Why can't I go and run local wildlife surveys? My personal interest, I'm an illustrator by trade, is sketching. And really, honestly, that the origin of me trespassing was because I walked back home the rights of way and drew the path going by the tree, going by the field a hundred times and it's when the massive oak tree falls over in that field over there that you're like of course I want to start drawing that you want to look at it like a fallen tree you want to walk in its canopy whilst it's horizontal there's a special moment that has happened before it gets cleared away and chainsawed up so my answer to Mark would be like I'd like there's nothing in our campaign that is saying uh, the footpaths are useless or like we love them uh, but there's an awful lot more uh, that can be done in the countryside. And rivers are the biggest example of that. We, we only have rights of access to 3% of rivers. And cold water swimming, uh, kayaking, paddleboarding, the need for the British Canoe uh, Association have doubled their membership over lockdown. People are hungry to experience nature. I'd ask Mark why uh, we should take his word for that. In following up with what you've just said does the new bill this criminal bill that they're proposing does that feed into this discussion it does in terms of wild camping at the moment in england you're not allowed to wild camp anywhere except for dartmoor but a lot of it goes on either like half permissive or just like as long as people don't leave any mess kind of thing. Now those people will be criminals. It affects the boating community that I'm on. If, if we, lockdown has created, just spawned no mooring signs all along the Thames. Like me and my girlfriend are heading to the Thames for the summer so I can just swim in a river that I'm allowed to swim in every day. But actually finding a place to just tie up for the night is going to be really difficult. If we choose the wrong place, if there aren't signs there, but it is private or whatever, they can, they can take my vehicle, which is my home. 
suddenly I have this empathy for the traveling community that I, I only had academically before, but now it's my bloody home. But I think fundamentally what it's going to do is just further put people off the countryside. It's going to, it's going to, it's just going to make the place more aggressive or more gnarly. It's, it's not going to help with the travellers. The police themselves have overwhelmingly said the solution for this is more stopping sites, more temporary stopping sites. Yeah. Priti Patel is lying when she says, yeah. like actual lying when she said there has been an increase in stopping sites. She's referring to permanent stopping sites, whereas uh, temporary ones, essentially for people that want to still be travellers, that still want to or have to uh, take to the road, either for work or for finance. Those have gone down. They've been uh, decimated. So this is it's very hard to make an argument against people in positions of such power that do just lie. And it, it feels very frustrating because why should people not believe them? They're, they're the heads of state. They're doing a lot worse than they're being accused of, really, by lying to the public like that. I'd like to just read something from someone who is in the situation of, let me just read it out. They say, I live and work in the road full time. Up until COVID, I travelled with my co-workers and when on time off, I parked on a quiet dead end in an industrial estate for over two years. The council were fine with this, being with us being there as we kept it tidy and were no trouble. This new law means we cannot keep our small community together, can't even stay with my partner as he has lived in his vehicle and his work vehicle too, as I do, which makes four vehicles so we cannot even park together. There are no sites provided for us for when we need to park up between jobs and do maintenance either. What are we supposed to do? I understand some of you may have concerns about traveller communities if you've never been around them. And maybe I'm just being really dramatic here, but we've seen this before with the marginalising and the eradication of what are Indigenous cultures. People say to me on my foraging courses, Robin, where's the Indigenous knowledge? We haven't got any tribal people and the pics died out when they did. So who's the closest we've got? Where's the indigenous knowledge? I'm not an expert in this, but it's pretty obvious to me that the Roma are, if anything. Mm -hmm. And then you do have English, Scottish, Welsh traveling communities that have been around a very long time, not just mm -hmm. 10 years. We're not talking the, the new age travelers that were Battle of the Beanfield kind of scenarios. And that I've traveled the world visiting traditional cultures and I've seen the consequences of, of genocide and the real darkness of traditional cultures being destroyed. My biggest concern is that you start going this route of criminalizing Roma communities and traveler communities. And I don't care whether you approve of their lifestyle, they have as much right to be part of our culture, living in the way they choose to live than anyone else. And it's a dark route. It's the thin end of the wedge when we start going down this route. And I'm going to call it out. It is the thin end of the wedge to a state of fascism, however you want to put it up there. And I, I said to Nick at the beginning of this 
discussion before we started recording that fascism can be really rationalized. It's a rationalism and a rationalization for demonizing the other, the outlier, the fringe dweller. We always posited this question. What would it look like being growing up in Nazi Germany? How would you have seen the writing on the wall? Because this stuff is drip fed. Totalitarianism, authoritarianism comes through drip feeding change in the social consciousness of people. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, the writing on the wall, Priti Patel is the darkest person on the, in this country at the moment with her pu- zealotness pushing this bill through. I'm deeply concerned. And I'm concerned for the world that my grandchildren are being brought up in because it's not good. We fought fascism in the past. Whatever you think of the military, people died to protect this country from that kind of crap. And it seems it's about to walk through our back door and we're just welcoming it. That's that's it. I don't tend to uh, emphasise the, the fascist angle of it because the fascism grew in Germany, in very similar economic situations, maybe in very similar kind of uh, xenophobic playing, basically telling the working class person that the there was a group of people that were the enemy rather than like the economic situation that was uh, put in. I go into this, the history of our response to traveling people in chapter three of the book. And there is a bigotry against travel that extends longer than racism when racism was invented to justify the slave trade uh, from the 1600s onwards. The Roma were already being persecuted across Europe. As I say in the book, property decides what is proper. If being able to access land or live your life in a real space, which is what land is, there's nowhere else for us to be than land because we don't have gills. If that is restricted by the fact that you don't own that piece of land, or any piece of land. Therefore, where can you rest? Where can you come to stop? Where can you express your culture? Then property, the laws of property become the laws of social cleansing. They become the laws of governing society. If you're not allowed on this land, you're not allowed on my next door's land, you're not allowed carrying on and on, then you're just not allowed to be. The traveling community as it stood Even in the 70s, when the Watersons were singing 30-foot trailer, in the 50s, the travellers of the New Forest were were also forced to come together and uh, basically live in bricked coops, basically, like chicken coops, behind chicken wire kind of thing. Right at the start of what you were saying, that letter that came in and said, our van, me and my boyfriend, and our, our way of life is just no longer uh, going to be feasible. That's precisely the point of this bill. And I totally know what you mean by fascism and rationalism. It's numbers, not feelings, that kind of thing. But there's no logical reason why itinerant travellers and people that uh, live in their vans, they're not committing any crime. Why are the government choosing now at a time where arguably all of society is in a more vulnerable state than, than they were two years ago? Why are they choosing now to, to further put in peril communities that are already marginalised and don't have access uh, to GPs and healthcare. Why are they doing this? And, and that is, that's where I come closer to what you're saying about Pretty Patel, that, that there is just an innate, unquestioned bigotry 
that has not been contextualized in the minds of the people that are swinging this axe. Like we say, don't get angry, get organized. This police crackdown bill, it's irrational. I don't know why they have decided to unite Sisters Uncut, XR, Friends, Families, Black Lives Matter. Why have they decided to unite them all? I know for a fact that there is a lot being planned to, to kick this bill out. All the state have got is violence now, and that's exactly what has been... We won't go into Bristol, but two weeks, three weeks, four weeks hence, the evidence is all there. That was a police-created riot. I understand why people find that very hard to accept, because who wants to live in that society? But the evidence is there. a song called Don't Steal This Land by Holy River formerly Lobo Marino and you can find more of their music at holyrivermusic.com Now back to the discussion I've got a question here from a couple of people so I'm combining it Someone has asked what is the difference between trespass and the right to roam and then also 
can we still roam on private land to forage for mushrooms and wild plants, etc.? Let me answer the, the first one, because uh, during the break, you've just <laughs> made my eyes fall out of my skull by telling me basically what, what your answer would be to the second question. So I'll defer to the expert on that one. Um, I'm not an expert. The experience. Then. This is the legislation on the GovUK site. Sure. Basically, the whole kind of twist, the kind of movie style twist at the end of uh, my book is that every single trespass that I did, were it under the Scottish Land Reform Act, were, had I done it in Scotland, it wouldn't have been considered trespassing at all. Because every time I jumped over the wall or whatever, I adhered to the Scottish Outdoor Countryside Code, which is basically a, a, a list of ethics that make sure you put the ecology of the land or the water first. Uh, so don't trample on any crops don't go anywhere near you know within say 70 meters of uh, a person's dwelling be respectful of someone's privacy all of these things make perfect sense so the difference between right to roam and trespass is basically the old archaic a system that defines it like right to roam in scotland includes camping swimming paddleboarding, as well as walking uh, and if you're doing any of those things on land that you don't own in Scotland, you're doing it under the right to roam. And as long as you're not harming the countryside or interfering with the working of people that work in the countryside, you have every right to be there and to enjoy nature at your leisure. However, over the border down south in England, if you're doing exactly the same thing and you're not damaging the countryside, you're just, you don't own the land, so you have no right to be there. So you're trespassing. Trespass is a, a good example of the word trespass is the other word loiter. Like you can you can be hanging around somewhere and a police officer can come up and say, why are you loitering? <laughs> and loitering has this kind of loitering with intent to do something horrible. Yeah. But actually, I'm just waiting for the bus officer. So it basically, I'm a big fan of the kind of root sort of etymology of words and, and trespass is a french word appropriately because it's william the conqueror that introduced it and it means to très passer like to pass over uh, to cross a line which is also a kind of expression that we you really cross the line what you've got to start doing is questioning where those lines are and and who created them and who actually they serve and the answer is they were largely created by an unreformed parliament, whereby the criteria to become a member of parliament was ownership of vast tracts of land. So the difference between trespass and right to roam is basically they're the same act. It's just how the law chooses to define them. And as for foraging, tell me what you got. OK, so it always comes up. Let me let me tell you what I say to to people. OK, when they come on one of my foraging courses, rightly or wrongly, you either agree with this or you don't. I say that trespass as it currently stands doesn't really carry any weight. What does carry weight is aggravated trespass. So aggravated trespass, from my understanding, means going willfully and intentionally onto private property and damaging it. Or, doing or, or to obstruct the, the workings of it kind of thing. Then we get into it's my right. So I always say to people, and I live in Devon, and I forage around on landowners' property, or I did actually before I moved more into the city. And I always say to people, I say, look, this isn't about necessarily demanding your rights, and I'm playing 
devil's advocate on it. And I say foraging is about engendering community. And people in your community include landowners. So rather than just nipping over the fence and potentially causing conflict, to be honest, lots of landowners are quite relaxed about that if it's just you on your own. But I always say, knock on the farmer's door, knock on the landowner's door, introduce yourself, tell them about this Elizabethan plant that they've got on their land. And would they mind if you went and harvested some and trade them a couple of jars of whatever you make with that plant? And that's always been my attitude to foraging and land ownership and private property. It doesn't mean you go into someone's personal garden five foot away from their living room window and start uprooting plants. And well, not, you're not allowed to uproot plants. Let's make that clear. And some most people accept that because to me, foraging is about engendering community. And it's about in, community is not just human community. It's, it's the more than human world as well. And it's becoming intimate with our local land base, our local community. And some of that is owned by people. And the best way to, to break through the resistance is to just talk to them. It's always been about discussion. It's always been about, look, I'm not a threat to your land. It is your land. I respect it's your land. And can we come to come to a mutual kind of agreement that, do you mind if I walk across the land? Now, every single time I've approached a landowner in that way, I've never been refused. There was one landowner who did say, Robin, if you do want to go on my land, just could you just knock on the door and just let me know that you are on it? And eventually, over time, he just said that you don't need to do that. I know. I trust you. You're cool. So that's how my approach was. And then it's all got a bit fractious over the last couple, over the last couple of years. Now, I know most foraging teachers from my understanding have not experienced it but there's something going on where I've been jumped taking groups in London people phoning in because they've seen us massing 12 people is hardly a threat 200 people maybe then we've had people shadowing us like park rangers and in Exeter here one of the last groups I took out there were two cops who literally just stuck stood in the distance just observing us and you may think that's okay, but it's actually not okay. It's very intimidating. I'm trying to teach, and my train of thought is, are we just going to get, are they just going to come in at some point and just cause a bit of, tr not trouble as in get all antsy, but just you don't want authorities breaking up a really bonded group of people who are all completely nerding out on plants. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's just not there. So... There's another side of the trespass thing, which is if you get some bucolic landowner who then goes, go off my land, like my daughter, yeah, age 13, was going around someone's orchard and the landowner's wife came out and was absolutely abusive and repulsive to my daughter. And it really upset my daughter. And there was absolutely no reason for that behavior. And so I looked into it. And what I found was that actually under the 1968 Theft Act, and there'll be a link in the show notes, but I'm reading this directly from legislation.gov.uk. 
It's the 1968 Theft Act. It's section four, which is property, and it's subsection three. And this is what it says. A person who picks mushrooms growing wild on any land or who picks flowers, fruit or foliage from a plant growing wild on any land does not, although not in possession of the land, steal what he picks unless he does it for reward or for sale or other commercial purpose. For purposes of this subsection, mushroom includes any fungus and plant includes any shrub or tree. So criminal law supersedes statute law and civil law, from my understanding. I may well be wrong. I'm sure there's lawyers out there who go, oh, Robin, you got that bit wrong. But I don't think I have because we've been bouncing this one around for about 10 years. And so trespass as it stands at the moment, as foragers, we are entitled to go onto private property without landowners' consent to gather above ground fruits, flowers, foliage and fungi. I'm the guy that literally wrote the book on it <laughs> and I didn't know that. <laughs> and that makes it from a book point of view, that's a glaring omission. But from just, I don't understand why they made that law other than to, to spread a sense of justice and equality across the country, which is quite a, quite a rare law to be sourced from that kind of a perspective if that's the case and if, if there are lawyers that are listening that can pick holes in that then I, both you and I I'm sure Robin would be just really keen to read that or to hear that because if that's the case then that's the kind of community that we're hoping to create with the countryside people that know what wood sorrel looks like people that know what to do with a pig nut <laughs> Like people that know, that recognize and go back and study and draw and love and cook with. We're in a, I was telling you on the phone the other day, the like just where we happen to be on the Kennet and Avon in just outside of Bath, the valley of the Avon is just carpeted with wild garlic. And what I haven't done with wild garlic recipes <laughs> is um, crazy, but looking into wild garlic i've obviously learned more about lords and ladies or the, as you would with mushrooms the, the the false friends the ones that look lords and ladies look nothing like wild garlic and this is this takes us back to education as well it's through the visceral experience of nature that you then ignite the love of it and part of love is finding out more about it. From an educational point of view, we've got the cart before the horse. We're teaching people biology, but we're not allowing them to, to observe it or to be amongst it. And certainly I, like my girlfriend's a much more prolific forager than I am, knows a lot more about it. It just feels good to have studied something, know what you can do with it, and then observe it in the woodlands and think, oh, just that joy of, oh, there you are. Hello. Yeah. And then just take a little bit because no one wants to, when you're there, to, to decimate it. It feels wrong to do that. And then take it home and enjoy it and try a new recipe or something. That is a kind of engagement with the world that we want to encourage. And crucially, is vital not just for the health of our nation but for the health of the environment if people know more about their environment then stuff like habitat loss and species decimation steps out of the abstract into the real my way of teaching foraging is not to see plants as a resource for humans that 
that feeds into some very ancient stories that we tell ourselves that the creator gave us the land and the earth mm. for our use. Yes, you can gather wild garlic, but within the community of wild garlic, there is a story that is unspoken and often un unheard. And that is the other non-human beings that thrive and benefit from that wild garlic being there. Mm. I've often said foraging is a metaphor for living. It's a way of approaching land and approaching the more than human world by observing. And philosophically, I'm very much in the Taoist camp. Yeah, the very ancient pre-Confucius Taoist camp, which is we sit with the landscape and we observe and we learn from it because as humans are very young species, plants and other beings have been a lot longer. And the ecosystem is a blueprint of how to relate with the rest of the ecosystem. And it is through studying something like wild plants for, for food or medicine or craft purposes or other utilitarian purposes that we understand the interrelationship and the play between the different species that exist. So take wild garlic. There is more going on than the human seeing wild garlic and seeing pesto. Mm -hmm. There is a whole thriving interrelationship and interbeingness, to quote Tishna Han, of how we then caretake and tend the wild. Absolutely. I which mean... is education. Yeah, because it teaches us ecology, it teaches us biology, it teaches us aesthetics, it, te it just expands into the whole realm of human existence and what it means to be a human. And as to quote Stephen Harrod Booner, to rediscover what our ecological function as a human species actually is. Because at the moment, we can see by how we're treating the, the earth and what we're doing to it, that we do not understand our e ecological function. And by studying the more than human world, I believe, we can glean from it. That is what every ancient nature-based philosophy, spiritual tradition does. Just 148,000% agree, basically. Uh, we're working closely with a group called Lawyers for Nature, who are uh, a not-for-profit group who are campaigning to give trees and rivers what's called legal standing, effectively human rights. And there was a whole chunk uh, that I had to cut out at the end bit of the book just because of brevity or it's already 400 pages long it's i apologize to anyone <laughs> that, you know, no one wants to pick up a book and see that many pages but but really both lawyers for nature and myself and guy shrubsole who wrote who owns england who lead in on this campaign both of us really we believe that to give trees legal standing or human rights is not enough because uh, it, it's almost like we go topsy-turvy and we go back to where we all began where trees and rivers are regarded as more than human which you might call gods not to overlay any of this or, or force a prism of spirituality into it because i'm not overly spiritual when it comes to nature i like the pragmatic side of it but i don't actually see them divorced from each other there is something about a river that feeds 
and essentially creates an ecosystem. This is why we're working closely with the Beavers Trust as well. What beavers do to rivers in terms of just creating water meadows is just such an incredible world. And I think I learned like this is just from Ramsons. There's a specific hoverfly that only lays its eggs in Ramsons, I think. Yes. I, don't, I don't know its name because I literally just picked it up. Yeah. But that's the kind of um, collateral love that comes with a focused love. You go into Ramsons because uh, they taste nice. You come well, out. Rams, your... Ramsons, to everyone who's listening who don't know what that is, wild garlic. Oh, sorry. Yeah. The old names. The old, the old names. names. The old names. Common names. <laughs> One of the old common names. Yeah. But for me, stick thorn or, or black stick making is, is my real passion in the countryside. And, and like blackthorn is the, because the old Irish shillelagh is a, a kind of fighting stick that they, uh, and I've got a load of uh, shanks just seasoning for next, next winter when I'll start to shape them and carve them and this wow. and that. But you go amongst blackthorn growers and the blackthorn has just exploded in its gorgeous like blossom at the moment. But then you start listening to old Irish songs about the blackthorn and you start looking up about the mythology. And again, this doesn't have to be necessarily spirituality, but folklore is just a kind of imaginative account of people's relationship and feeling, the sensory feeling about plants and trees and flora and fauna and I, it's creative and it's exciting and it's interesting and from someone that draws point of view there's definitely a few lino cut illustrations that will come about I can't pronounce her name but Kaliak who carries a black crow on her shoulder and she is the goddess the Irish goddess of winter and Blackthorn is her kind of witch's staff like Blackthorn was traditionally the staff of witches because it carried with it magic. But then it carries with it, this is again, just on the theme of like collateral love, it carries with it, uh, Blackthorn almost represents not just death, but the acceptance of death. And so you can be cutting, you go into the woods to cut a walking stick and you come out having just meditated on mortality. And these are very specifically the, the aspects of the countryside that it, it's almost impossible to put statistics on or to give evidence for. But people go for walks in the woods to let their minds flow. We discussed at the beginning of this conversation that the problems and the us and them vibe that's doing the rounds. And this actually is where it, the stories pull us together because if you look at traditional indigenous cultures that have been eradicated or co-opted that there's a similar pattern it's like when we forget these stories whether they're the ancient stories of from an Irish folk song or their modern kind of inspired stories that only comes and they're inspired by nature they that can only happen when we have access to it and we can immerse ourselves in it this is about giving access to the people, for our mental well-being, for our mental health. And for me, to remember where we came from, the stories of this land in an, in a, in an unpatriotic way, I'm not talking flag-waving here, but in, a, in an indigenous way, where we find our feet, the land and how the land has taught us 
and through that teaching, how we then go into the world and behave in the world in a way that is in keeping with the rest of the ecosystem rather than something aberrant and off the path, off our track of relationship or right relationship. This is the, the real meat of the book that I wrote because essentially it's looking into how our exclusion from the landscape and how the kind of exclusive property concept feeds into social strata, class and race and uh, gender. Just to pick one of them, like gender, for example, like how, how does land ownership affect the rights of women? Well, in detail, in a lot of specific ways, but when William the Conqueror came over and created this notion of sole dominion, of total ownership, he also introduced this clause in the marriage concept called femme couvert. The woman was treated in exactly the same way as the land, as an object that could be bartered for, sold. And when she became married, she was under femme couvert, the covered woman. Her whole entity was subsumed into that of the husband. That's where the taking of the name comes from. Previous to that, Anglo-Saxon women could sign their own contracts, could divorce their husbands. There, this notion that women have fewer rights than men was again something that was contrived. And certainly my book looks into uh, witches because witches and the commons totally bleeds into what we're talking about in terms of herbology and the, the old wisdom of weeds and plants, that, that actually it seems that this notion of women as being, or, or the feminine as being weak and irrational, was actually, the more you look at it, the direct counterattack to the fact that women were the apt, were the glue and the bulwarks of communities and the keepers of knowledge and the keepers of power. So they called them witches and hanged them. And the hangover of that is what, Groups like Sisters Uncut and the Suffragettes are, are still fighting. Not the Suffragettes so much, but Sisters Uncut. The concept, what you're saying, how foraging is actually teaches us how to, to be human in the world and amongst each other is the opposite of what private property is saying, which is teaching a hierarchy and a superior division of rights for those that have money and power. So yeah, it's... It, that there is no line between how we treat the land and how we treat each other. No, this has been a fascinating riff for people who want to know more about your work, Nick, can you just tell them where they can find you and all the links will be in the show notes, but for people who are just hearing, where do they get a hold of you? How can they follow up on this discussion? Oh, so I'm Nick Hayes Illustration on Instagram. I'm like foghornhayes.com uh, on a website. That's for my art stuff. Righttoroam.org.uk is the place that I would really urge people uh, to sign up to. Not because we think we've got all the answers, but because we're the people trying to raise the conversation at the moment. And we would love you to sign up to us and inform our campaign as it goes just as you have with this new information on foraging. We are not people that are trying to tell landowners what to do. We're people that are trying to create a conversation about how best we can improve the public health of our nation. And also what so many of us are crying out for, just a deeper connection with nature that we love so much. So we would love people to join in with us there. And, and yeah, thank you, Robin, and thanks everyone for listening, because it's been a 
cracking conversation. Thanks a lot, Nick. It's been great having you on.